Hey everybody, welcome to The Afterword, I'm Dave Tish. This is where we talk about what we didn't get to talk about. You know, growing up, I was a child of the 80s, which was great, because, you know, Cindy Lauper and gummy bears, etc., etc. But one of the things that if you would have asked people in the 80s, what is the biggest threat to global peace in the world? There would have been one clear answer, and that would have been political ideology. The communists versus the U.S., the Russians, the Soviets versus the U.S. This is Rocky IV, and we're going to destroy each other with nuclear bombs, and that's going to be the end of civilization. That was the fear for several decades. Now, and I don't know this because I haven't done this, if you asked every American what's the biggest threat to global peace, they'd probably say religion. The idea that religion results in conflict, bloody conflict, war, dissension, tribalism... These are some of the biggest objections levied against religion. And today we're going to get into this question. Is the Bible pro-violence? We're going to go into a series of texts in the Old Testament which seem to prove that God is bloody, brutal, and barbaric and commands his people to be so as well. These are what's called the Old Testament Holy War text. We're going to dive into these. I've got Andy Gridley here with us. We're going to delve into this. We're going to look at the scholarship. We're going to look at the history. We're going to see what theologians and scholars have said, and we're going to try to make sense of this right now. All right, hey everybody, welcome to The Afterword. I'm here with my good friend, Andy hey, Gridley. Hey, it's great to be with you again. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Okay, so Andy, uh, I wish we were here under uh, fuzzier circumstances, something uh, I know. a little bit easier. We're here to talk about holy war and violence in especially the Old Testament texts. Yeah. Um, this week is, uh, I would say, probably the most difficult. Honestly, I think this is the most difficult week out of all of them. Yeah, Dan Kimball in the book, How Not to Read the Bible, says if there was any topic that is the most difficult to talk about, this is probably it. Yeah. Um, this is the one that makes... The reason why it's so hard, I think, is because it makes God look like a, a moral monster. Yeah. Um, uh, it makes him look capricious. Yeah, he's violent. pro-violent. He's just running around looking for people to smite, you know? Yeah. yeah and that, that fills us with fear that he's not good. And in fact, I think, you know, we, we talked about this, but as people just kind of pick different verses out of the Old Testament, understandably mm -hmm. so... And, you know, turn them into memes and this kind of stuff. There is a growing voice, a growing consciousness uh, that that's un, untrue. But there's this thought that God, in fact, is malicious, that he's right. just looking for people to kill, yeah. to smite, to judge. So we have to be care uh, careful of a couple of things. Number one, we have to be careful of caricature. Yeah. We have to be careful um, of these things. But at the other side of this... We have to be careful that we're not just dismissive of this. Yeah. Uh, one of the things you shared, with me, you shared with me early in the week was a meme of a famous pastor saying it was God's pleasure to kill all these people, so stop it. Yeah. Stop, stop questioning God. Yeah. I think that that doesn't help. Yeah, Dan Kimball calls this the no apology approach. Right. And it's not necessarily wrong. You know, God is the creator of life. He's the sustainer of life. He, he numbers our I days. brought you into this world, boy. I'll take yeah, you out. Yeah. yeah so, so if we're having a if we're having a question or a discussion about God's authority, His ultimate authority. Yeah. Uh, if we're having a discussion about His omnipotence, his, yeah. Then this makes total sense. But it doesn't. But that's not the question. Yeah. It doesn't help us emotionally because it makes me feel far from God because I'm afraid of Him. Yeah. And um, or it makes Him seem unintelligible, like. 
I have a sense of morality, and you are violating it left and right, God. So therefore, I'm not even sure I can and worship you. And it doesn't you. jive with other aspects of Scripture and, and ways we, we encounter right. God throughout the Scripture. Right. So we, I think we're asking a slightly different question. I don't think we're asking, does God have the right to do this? And can we trust because he's a good God that, that he'll do this with wisdom and all that stuff? I think we're just asking, hey, from what we know about God's character, how does this make any sense? Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's a bigger thing. And I, I think it, it does fall emotionally flat because although we can't know everything about God, I think that there are some things he really wants us to know about him. Yeah, that's right. And so, and I think that it's fair for us to ask these questions. So um, I think that the whole shut up, um, God can do whatever he wants, I don't know if that's, I don't think that's a helpful posture. Yeah. Um, and it, at the very least, it falls emotionally flat to me. Okay, so let's get into this. Uh, first of all, let's talk about um, where we're going to be drawing from. There was a number of books that you and I both kind of read yeah. in pre- preparation for this. In addition to Kimball's How Not to Read the Bible, yep. um, there's a couple other books. There's a book called um, The Skeletons in God's Closet by Joshua Ryan Butler. Yeah, which we book. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. It deals with lots of topics about this. Um, that's a good one. What are, what are some of the other ones that yeah. you, you're looking at? Yeah, I think um, Kimball refers to Is God a Moral Monster? And By call, Paul Copan. Copan, yeah, yeah. that's a good one. And in fact, he even references some stuff from that book that's really helpful. Um, Bloody, Brutal, and Barbaric is the last one that I read 16 chapters. These guys wrestle for 14 years, Webb and... Ost. Go- Ost. Uh, William Webb and Gordon Ost. These guys for 14 years wrestle this question, is God pro-violence? How right. do we reconcile and make sense of these violent passages in the Old Testament? So let's so pretend... Let's well pretend we're, yeah, let's pretend we're at Starbucks. I say to you, Andy, uh-huh. I... The Jesus stuff makes sense to me. I love it. I don't understand how that relates to the Old Testament war text, the whole, what's called the Holy War text, where God commands people to go into a particular land, Canaan in this case, with military force and kill human beings. What's going on there? So let's talk a little bit about that, and then we'll get to the character of God uh, on the back. So based on these books and the research these theologians and scholars have done, what has helped settle this question for you? What are some things that have helped you? Yeah, um, well, this has been definitely swimming in the deep waters. I think this, I want to make sure I say that, you know, like our listeners, this is probably not something we resolve overnight. Sure. And, uh, but as Nor I, are we experts. Yeah, so, yeah, right, definitely I get not that. an expert. I get that. But, um, you know, as I have wrestled with these texts and with these different authors and their work, and I, I have come out the other side actually more confident of God's character, mm. uh, that he is um, loving and faithful and compassionate and slow to anger, that he is not, in other words, pro-violence. Um, we'll talk about this later, but that he's pro-Eden. So mm-hmm. th- that I, I've been able to make sense of uh, this violence in an ethical way sure. by um, understanding who he is and what he's doing in our world. But um, we talked a little bit that, that God um, in these holy texts, these holy war texts, is... Um, th- that these this violence is relegated to a specific time, it, meaning we don't see God acting this way th- throughout all of Scripture. Just uh, this is a very specific time that uh, there's these holy wars. So just kind of like mir- just like in the Bible, miracles come in giant bursts because God's doing a thing. You're saying that this is a punctuated equilibrium, 
that this is actually um, it's a specific time period. It's, it's not over the entire narrative. Yeah, there's judgment even in the New Testament. Yeah. We see in the whole, in the early church, Ananias and Sapphira. There continues to be judgment. God is um, mm-hmm. moves against evil. But as far as these holy wars, it's a very specific time. So the first thing that helps is that this is a very small part of the entire narrative. Yes, it doesn't make it less troubling, but at least it says, well, it, it's relegated to this time. Yeah, it tells us a little bit about okay. God, right? It's, he's not doing this. Uh, at all times right so the next would be um that it's a place not a people okay what do you mean by that yeah so uh, i think dan kimball talks about it as driving out versus wiping out he god is moving in a very specific time in history to restore eden eden in genesis has been lost uh because of the fall because actually we declare war against god right and god in his faithfulness to us doesn't abandon us to our sin and our our wickedness and to our evil uh, he's interested in re-gathering uh, with his people in a specific place. So they need a land because yes. a kingdom needs a, a king, yeah. it needs a people, and it needs a land. Yeah. And so the land part's the hard part. And the, the problem is there's people living there. Yeah, the so Canaanites. They're, the yeah. Canaanites. So they're being driven out of the land so that Egypt could have the land. Yeah, the, the, it's very important to understand that this isn't genocide as in wanting to target a specific people group and wipe them out. God is moving into a specific place. Butler talks about it as evicting a certain group of people and again the focus is on the place this is a strategic place right uh, in the ancient uh, near east and it would be where jesus himself would be born and actually crucified and um, this was a place to influence other nations the point was to draw all people so it's not like a posture toward people toward the tribes toward other nations it was a particular time now the other thing that we talked about and and i think that um, Webb and Est do the, a really good job of this, and so does um, Joshua Ryan Butler, is the idea of war-boasting hyperbole. Oh, yeah. The idea here is that the language that we're hearing about killing every man, woman, and child yes. is actually idiomatic expressions in Hebrew yeah. that aren't to be, and this is going to sound like we're trying to make excuses linguistically, but they're saying those aren't, those are idiomatic expressions that aren't meant to be taken literally. Yeah. It's like when um, the Warriors lose by 30 because they're terrible this year, and somebody <laughs> says they got slaughtered. Right. Right. So there's war yeah, boasting if you came hyperbole. From another time period, and you didn't really understand the dynamics of that Warriors. You game, thought that Steph Curry and, and all the people literally. were li- literally their blood was on the floor. Yeah, but we do this all the time, right? Sure. We we, we use hyperbole, and um, in ancient Near East, again, this is from my studies from scholars, not that I'm an expert in this, but we know that this was a very common war rhetoric practice that you would you would inflate the size of the war the size of the army your army you would inflate the the victory mm-hmm. um, you'd inflate just completely wiping out versus um, really subduing or or dominating yeah. in that war so yeah hyperbole is a really important thing to understand in this this and there's it's also tied to the idea um this is also done in the scholarship that this wasn't when we hear city oftentimes we're not thinking of a city with all the inhabitants and all the inner workings of a city that what was being attacked and conquered were forts or military outposts yeah the word that's used that we translate city 
is best understood as a military outpost. So that that puts a whole there's not going to be women and children hanging around a military no, outpost they, just like there isn't today. Yeah. So when they when that thing gets taken over, that gets overrun by the troops, that military outpost falls and therefore there's a pushing and advancing yeah. of the of the line. Yeah. Um those folks are defeated sometimes um you know c- completely, but it Later on, even in the text, you see the same people who just defeated that fort interacting with men, women, and children from the rest of that people group. So it's it's yeah, it's Kimball, obviously they didn't kill everybody yeah. because they're interacting with them a couple of verses later in the text. Yeah, Kimball provides a chart, I think, oh, that's, that's right. from, from um, Copen's book. And um, it actually shows one scripture passage where it'll be like, they wiped them all out. And then... Just a little bit later, it'll say, and then, you know, the Canaanites were there or the Moabites were there. Yeah, yeah. And so um, just within a more thorough reading of the text, we realize what's happening here. They're not being deceptive. They're trying to communicate something really important, that they came and they evicted, they subdued uh, a, a, a kind of a, they have the control now. They're the dominant yeah. presence, and they can represent God in a fresh new way against um, That's a table eighteen one on page two eighty three of Kimball's book. By the way, I was just looking it up. Um, but yeah, he talks about how there's this language of extermination, and then a couple of, of verses later, it's clear that not everyone has been killed. Yeah. So, um, so the idea that it's a military outpost, that this is the kind of um, language that was used, um, kind of hyperbolically. Yeah. Um, and then I think also it was really important to say that God is um, in these holy war texts. He's he's against evil not ethnicity you know when we read these quickly the thing that's most popularized is like god is committing genocide here you know if i read this too literally i don't understand the hyperbole yeah i'm like wow he wiped out entire people groups he named them the canaanites or i don't even know how to say amokalamites and the mechalites and the mobites (laughs) and the mosquito bites yes and the mosquito yeah that's good and so i think if if we don't understand the hyperbole we think wow he's against wiping out in complete ethnicity groups, but yeah. really he's against evil. Right. It's evil, not ethnicity. And that speaks to Canaan and where they were as a people, as a civilization. Yeah, one of the things that's hard about this um, is that God does command this movement. There's no getting around that biblically. Um, but one of the things that's helped me is, uh, tell me if this resonates with you. Maybe this doesn't. I don't know. And I, again, I'm not trying to make excuses for God. God obviously can do what he wants. But as I struggle to make sense of what's going on here, there's this moment in Genesis 15 where God comes to Abraham and says, this land's going to be yours. Yeah. And Abraham's like, and he moves a member all the way from Haran up at, at the top, which would be in kind of present day you know, um, Lebanon up the, up there. Um, or even Jordan, uh, he kind of moves them all the way down to, to Israel. Yeah, it's says, interesting. He's literally pulling Abraham out of Canaan. Yeah, yeah. He puts him down here and says, all this land's going to be yours. And he says, your descendants are going to be slaves for 400 years. I'm yeah. going to judge Egypt for that. Yeah, the Israelites will go into slavery for 400 years. And then years. he says, you're going to come back, and there's going to be the people here, the Canaanites, they're going to be here. The people I took you out of are going to essentially beat you. Uh, you know, yeah. Butler says it's like, you know, a bunch of Texans ending up in in California, <laughs> and all of a sudden you show up in California to take the promised land or whatever. Yeah, and it's funny. And then the Texans are already here. So yeah. in this case, the Canaanites they, they are came, already in the they, promised land. And you have to, you're going. And he says, but their sin has not reached its full measure. Yeah. So he says, I'm going to delay my judgment um, for 400 years. So. Yeah. That's so what the, the heck is going on there? Why is God waiting patiently for 400 years to move the Israelites into the promised land? 
he, he says he's waiting on the Canaanites on yeah. something. Well, one of the things that's interesting is, as I tried to make sense of what does it look like for a society to reach the full measure of its sin, uh, my son is, he's in 10th grade, and he is in the middle. I used to teach 10th grade, mm-hmm. so this is a really fun uh, time for us because, you know, we get to revisit the books and the things, and we get to talk about it. He gets to write essays, and he's studying a very short book, uh, a Nobel Prize winning book um, called Night by Elie Wiesel. It's mm-hmm. about the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And I think in that, uh, it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. It is. It took Wiesel 10 years of silence. Wow. He didn't write or talk for 10 years. And then he recounted his experiences in one fell swoop, and that was it. Wow. And it is, it's horrifying. Mm. And my son is just like, Dad, this is, I don't even know, I can't make sense of this. And later on, he's just like, hey, there's this movie called Schindler's List. Can we watch it? And I'm like, I don't know if I'm up for it. Like, yeah. it is, it is horrifying. Yeah. And that, to me, is an example, and it helps put flesh on what it might look in modern context for society to reach the full measure of its sin. Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany, the Third Reich. Yeah. Um, and you saw, um, you know, my, my wife is, um, she studied in France. You see, you see the destruction that that society had on the world. Yeah. I mean, not just in human life, the 6 to 12 million people that were killed, but the devastation that it wrecked, mm-hmm. um, um, the, the war, the violence. And yeah, you could say, well, they had to, to go to war, but the fact that they were so... I think mil- what you're saying is that there's actually a proper use of violence, of pushing back against yeah. Nazi Germany. Yeah. For a greater good, for a, right. a harmony, a peace. A, right. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He's like, a tiger's coming to kill everyone. What do you expect us to just lay? I mean, we're going to fight back against mm-hmm. it. Of course yeah. we are. So there's a sense in which if God opposes that kind of evil, mm-hmm. that kind of wickedness, yeah. then that makes moral sense to my heart. It makes sense that there would be an opposition to this. It me understand it. And the thing is, we have so much distance from Canaan. We don't oh. understand. But but our, our scripture, our Bible actually helps us know a little bit more about Canaan in those 400 years. This wasn't just like a group of people who, you know, were worshiping other gods or whatever. They specifically worshiped this god Molech. Yeah. And, um, and we see this in Leviticus 18. God condemns all their actions. I'm just yeah, saying he that. He says, yeah. do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. Mm-hmm. For you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And if you were with us on the weekend, you know that we actually showed a picture of this statue of Molech. And uh, I think it's Pol- Poltic, this Greek philosopher. Oh, yeah. He talks about um, um, his own account. You know, So it's not just within Scripture of um, parents p- giving their baby to this this statue, which then they would essentially light the statue on fire and the baby would burn. It was like hollow iron. They'd fill it up with a raging fire. The, it, the, the outstretched arms of Moloch would be there, and they would place the naked infant on the arms, the white hot iron or metal arms, and, then basically and the baby would be seared to death. And the music to 11 so they didn't have to hear the screams the of the screams baby. Of the baby. I, it, this is horrific. This is a level of evil that we are removed from. So when we read it, we just think, oh, he's just picking on a group. No, for 400 years, he was waiting for the Canaanites to turn from evil, evil practices. But that's not the way sin works. Sin spirals us down. I think, and I I could be mistaken, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, but there was a King Josiah later on. He was a boy king. He became king. When he got older, he went to the priests of Moloch and he exhumed their bones and burned them. 
and then he burned them again and then he burned them a third time it was a symbolic act of this is so evil i'm going to destroy every aspect of this this must be wiped away out of our society and we have got to turn to god because this is evil uh, beyond evil. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I'm, I, I'll have to check on that. So forgive me listeners, but that th- there's a sense in which that stuff makes a, a little bit more sense. Yeah, it's, it's against evil, not ethnicity. Yeah. Because we know another account in, in Nineveh, you know, oh, yeah. also a very, very brutal, evil uh, civilization. God sends Jonah, a reluctant prophet, and that the whole nation actually does turn. And so this right. is not God just looking to smite people. This yeah. is not ethnicity. He's not against eth- ethnicity. He is against evil. He's about to set up shop and live with his people. Right. And where a holy God is, there can be no evil. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, this is a section, a small section of the cross section of scripture. What other things, as you researched violence in the scriptures, helped you come to the conclusion that God is not pro-violence? Because um, there were some other things that were kind of interesting that, that you kind of learned, yeah. even, even even about the creation accounts. Yeah, absolutely. That's the first one that came to my mind. You know, God, um, when he creates the world in Genesis, he creates the world without conflict. If you pause and think about it, there's no war. Um, and that is so interesting because in ancient Near East, other accounts of creation— Every other— Near Eastern yeah. creation account. It always has this really bloody battle. In fact, there's this one with this guy Marduk, this god who has to split um, this other god's carcass in two parts. And this is using half her body to fashion the sky and the other half uh, the earth. Just super violent. Bloody yeah. violent. And so the story that was told is basically um, gods are violent, they're, they're, and the world was created out of violence. Out and of and therefore, we're probably going to be violent, too. Yeah. But the creation account in Genesis is one of goodness. Of goodness, of beauty. Of beauty. And God creates not, there's no conflict. Yeah. (laughs) There's no rival. Yeah, there's no rival. I found that to be really uh, beautiful. The other thing is, you said that a lot of ancient cultures would like glorify uh, violence in their temples. Yeah. And their stories. And so there's that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, uh, war and violence was, was... um, celebrated and to, again we've kind of talked about hyperbole but these warriors would go back and they would celebrate kicking some civilizations butt, and they would actually hire their best artists to inscribe art showing the battle and yeah. war rape and all these awful terrible things on the king's palace and yeah. on the temple as the, a testament to their power yeah right? and yeah. to celebrate and thank the god who helped them win what's really interesting is we don't see that kind of artwork in in the hebrew temple no. in israel's temple and even more powerful is when david wants to build a temple to god the god who's helped them establish themselves in the promised land yeah. in first chronicles this is very interesting in counterculture god says no i, I don't want you to build me a temple because you're a man of war and you have blood on your yes. hands. Mm-hmm. He says, you're a warrior and we can't have that. That's not what this is about. Yeah. That's fascinating. It doesn't so, mean again and, that and God David, David was a hero. I mean, yeah. he was a hero, but God's like, in terms of the temple, in yeah. terms of my image, that's that's not what we're about here. Yeah. I, I think, again, the nuance there is not that God will not push against evil. He will not use violence mm-hmm. or have judgment, but that he isn't, his his core identity is not pro-violence. He's yeah. not bloodthirsty like all these other gods. Well, it reminds me of Genesis 6, um, that, that horrible um, moment in Genesis 6 where it says, let me let me kind of pull it up here. Um, 
And this is right before Noah's Ark. It said, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And this is so powerful. And every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Yeah. And the Lord regretted he had made human beings, and his heart was deeply troubled. He, you know, This idea that God mourns over this brokenness, this is not why he created humanity. And um, he's, he's, he's wrecked by it. And he, he moves to wipe out the contagion of evil because the thing about evil is that you know this and I know this it never just stays yeah it's like an infection a virus yeah it just infects and it spirals us more and more lower and lower worse and worse corrupting baser and baser we just know that this is just the way it works and so God has to arrest that by the by the flood but it's not like he's gleeful about it it no. says that he mourns yeah. like this is against his heart yeah, I think what's really important for us to understand is that genuine love, God, who's love, right? We read it right here in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Love, genuine love, can't tolerate evil. It understands what it does uh, right. in our world, right. to others. Um, but what? that passage from Exodus is really, it's the most repeated um, passage in all of Scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, God himself is describing himself to Moses. which In is, the context of his people yeah. having just moved to other worship of other gods. Yes. You know, literally God is saying, look, I just freed you from Egypt. Here's how to live as a free people. I want you to understand this, yeah. this Eden reality yeah. where you walk with God and with others in perfect relationship. And in the middle of this... They turn on him, again, evil, and they begin to do uh, worship to another god. And in the middle of this, this is how God self-describes himself. Right? Yeah. And, and here, I'm going to read it again, because I think it's, it's it, Moses chisels the Ten Commandments, and it says, uh, Exodus 34, 6, and God, Yahweh, passes in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, as he's described himself, compassionate and gracious God, Yeah. slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is how God describes himself. And then yeah. he says, uh, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And you, you said, it, this is kind of interesting, that it's three or four generations of punishment, but the blessing is thousands. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, if you really read it slowly, you'll see there's like a six to one sort of distribution between these these attributes that are warm and fuzzy, uh -huh. and then this yeah. other side of love, which is judgment. Right, right. Six to one, and then similarly, like you just said, um, he commits this, this um, relationship for thousands of generations, but the, the yeah. judgment basically only lasts the night. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. His mercy is new every morning. <laughs> uh, and one of the, I'm going to close with this. One of the things that also helped me is uh, looking at Jesus. I think if you want the question of what does God do with violence and how does he view violence, the fact that Jesus goes to the cross and drinks in all that violence is really telling to yeah. me that this is God's posture. Um uh, this maybe this is just me. Uh, my son and I, you know, we, we're he, he's a teenage boy, so Marvel was all all it. And there's this moment where there's this. Um, if you're familiar with the films, there's this character, this evil character named Thanos, who's going to destroy the entire world, yeah. half the world, and he has to be stopped. And Doctor Strange is this guy who can kind of teleport into time and, and rewind time. 
and he does these simulations and uh-huh. he does like 12 million simulations and he comes out and they go, what did you find? He's like, there's only one way to defeat Thanos. Mm-hmm. There's just one scenario in which we win. Yeah. There's one time, there's one way that we can beat death. Yeah. This, this destructive villain. Yeah. And it's almost as though in the story of the Bible, the Trinity does this calculations. Yeah. They do 100 million, 120 billion simulations. And God says there's only one way to beat death and sin, and that we're, we're going to have to die. And Jesus yeah. is like, I'll go. Yeah. There's a sense in which the cross shows that the self-sacrificing nature of God to defeat death, that to me stabilizes me. Um, th- that's the big narrative. That's the big picture. Let's not lose the forest through the trees. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Does that help you as well? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, we see that God is... Um, moving against evil, but in a way that no other God does, Jesus takes that evil upon himself yeah. and he overcomes it. And And now we don't have to fear judgment. Now we don't have to fear any of this. Also, for those who have experienced any injustice, we have a God who's experienced injustice in a way that yeah. we can't even begin to imagine. He's the only one capable mm-hmm. of holy judgment Mm -hmm. and we can trust him we can run to him he's the god of compassion and love and for me i would take it one step further and just say now we're called to mirror him to be the same way it seems to me like it it, right now as christians everybody's angry (laughs) yeah everybody's quick to violence everybody whether it's their speech or just there's a posture that doesn't feel like what we just read about exodus yeah and i think god wants us to embody him and to mirror totally totally Andy, okay, well, so much in here. Thanks yeah. for your time. And uh, Thank you. I, I, I hope to have another conversation with you when it's not something so prickly and difficult. Oh, yeah. This is hard stuff. It's, it's This is hard stuff. In fact, I would say that um, this is probably, for me personally, the stickiest, most difficult part of the entire Bible. Yeah. Obviously, there's other parts that I don't like, but they make sense to me. This is really hard. Yeah. So it's okay to do the hard work, and I'm grateful for the scholars that we got to read. I'm grateful for Kimball for bringing this up. I'm, I'm grateful for you guys. Yeah, the invitation this is, is keep leaning in. Even yep. as it's difficult, there are great answers yeah. on the other side. And yep. Even more importantly, there's a God who's slow in <laughs> anger, who's compassionate, who's loving, uh, on the other side. I think it's good also to think about how slow to anger he's been with me. Yeah. How patient God has been with me. If yeah. if if God said my mercy has run out. Yeah. Dave, it's been 100 times or 7,000 oh, times. If he said that to me, I wouldn't blame him. Yeah. And yet as the scribes say again and again, Amen. his mercies are new every morning. Yeah. Jesus, his grace doesn't run out. It's inexhaustible. He has been so patient with me. There's a sense in which I, I know that to my core. And if I can think and reflect on that, yeah. and that's God's disposition toward humanity, um, that, that helps. That helps me too. Absolutely. And it, it drives me that's both well to said. gratitude and to worship. That's so. really well said. Thanks, Andy, for stopping by, man. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Just want to thank Andy Gridley for stopping by. Always awesome to talk to you, buddy. Also, join us next week where we'll be talking about whether or not the Bible is anti-woman. Man, we just do not let up on this show. We can't, we don't, and we won't stop. See you next week.